it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when we air. Many ways to listen live, including across our great affiliates all around the country, including our new affiliate this week in Youngstown, Ohio. Welcome. And if you can't listen as we air through those many different avenues, we have a podcast that is free of charge every day. The whole show in its entirety on demand at GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. One-stop shop for all of it. GuyBensonShow.com. Dot com. The podcast is there also at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We also have social media, if you're into that, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Toss us a follow if you'd like. We are broadcasting from the Tony Snow Studios, our home studio here at the D.C. Bureau of Fox News. I began the day in New York City, bright and early, on set with Maria Bartiromo. Mornings with Maria, now afternoons here with Guy in two different cities. So we do appreciate you tuning in. Here's the lineup that we have ready and raring to go today. Katie Pavlich, our friend and colleague, she and I saw each other up in the Big Apple yesterday. We were on Cudlow together. Katie will be here. I want to ask her about some policy. Also something kind of cool that she got to do in her personal life. A little cameo appearance on a hit TV show. In the next hour, U.S. Senator Marshall Blackburn is going to be here, a Republican of Tennessee. Also in our middle hour, I would like to discuss in some detail what happened in the House yesterday, a vote to codify same-sex marriage in the House, and it got almost 50 yes votes from Republicans and passed overwhelmingly. What does that mean? What was the purpose of it? What do I think of it? Why did it happen? Could it become law? What does the landscape look like in the U.S. Senate? I will break that down coming up in about an hour and a half from right now. And then in our final hour, Dr. Marty McCary of Johns Hopkins is going to be here. He and one of his colleagues have uncovered or at least brought to light and brought more attention to a brewing scandal in the public health realm. And I talked about this earlier in the week on the show. There are doctors and researchers and professionals at the CDC and FDA, part of that bureaucracy behind the scenes, who believe that they are being stifled and muzzled and they cannot dissent against what they see as bad guidance being issued by the government on public health questions, many of them related to COVID, where the science has been ignored and politicized. And he and this co-essayist, quote a number of these people that they've spoken to, and we will ask Dr. McCary about all of that coming up later in the show. That's a conversation that you're going to want to hear. And then at the end of the show, we'll do an extended home stretch today because our producer, producer Christine, had her birthday yesterday. She got to go see the Backstreet Boys, and there was a twist, a plot twist that we will tell you about. As we begin the show, 
Let's bring you a Fox News alert. President Biden just wrapping up an event in Somerset, Massachusetts on climate change, where he announced some new climate change related programs, but did not, as many people were expecting, as the White House had sort of teased they were flirting with, he did not declare a national climate change emergency, which would have been, I think, a huge abuse of power, how he would try to then use that emergency declaration to do things beyond his authority and control. It's not to say that he won't do that. They might continue floating that as a threat or at least something to keep the climate people off their back a little bit. But he didn't do it today. In fact, it's sort of unclear to me watching some of it what on earth the point of this entire event even was. Because they were out there ceding to some reporters, we might do this. We might declare the emergency. And you saw some Democratic lawmakers unwilling, unable to make laws, insisting that Biden do it for them in an unconstitutional way. Sheldon Whitehouse, who's one of the more dim-witted members of the United States Congress, he's a senator from Rhode Island, He was the guy who was a part of those all-white country clubs or social clubs while railing against white supremacy. That guy, the conspiracy theorist who makes a fool of himself whenever there's a nominee from a Republican president to the judiciary, that guy. He was demanding that Biden go into, quote, beast mode and just start trampling the Constitution, declaring a national emergency and trying to institute Green New Deal style policies without the assent or even input of Congress, which is just flagrantly illegal. White House was telling people, oh, yeah, we uh, we might do that. We might be doing that. Building up to this event today, which will now, I think, please absolutely no one. Am I glad that Biden didn't go completely overboard into lawlessness, at least not yet on this? Yes. I'm skeptical that they will maintain that posture. I hope that they will. But what he's saying and what he's doing obviously is not going to win support from conservatives. And then the left flank with all this, you know, sort of whispering and chatter about the national emergency declaration over the course of the last few days, a lot of them were getting their hopes up for that. They don't really care about the Constitution at all. They're all about outcomes. Right. Anything that they like is democracy, even if it is anti-constitutional, and anything that they don't like is an attack on democracy. It's totally results-oriented, and that's it. I'm not really exaggerating. So their expectations were not managed terribly well here, I would say, by the administration. So they're going to look at what the president just said in Massachusetts and say, who cares? What was that? Effectively, Joe Biden just flew to Massachusetts and read a speech off a teleprompter with his aviator sunglasses on, smiled, shook a few hands, and he's going to head back to the airplane and fly away. Think of the carbon footprint of this event. Now, look, I'm not going to actually cast aspersions and say, oh, the president shouldn't go to some sort of backdrop that has significance to do a media event, right? Optics are part of politics. This stuff happens all the time. Except, however, the counterpoint to that is, here's the guy who said 
in his remarks today, while not declaring a national emergency, still said, we consider it an emergency. So they're trying to split the baby here a little bit. It is an emergency. We're going to treat it like an emergency, but we're not going to formally declare an emergency. Again, I don't know who that is going to satisfy here. It will absolutely not satisfy the hardcore greenies. No way. And a lot of other people are going to say, okay, well, you know, what exactly is the point of any of this? What are you doing? And if it is your opinion, if it is your official, formally stated belief that we are in an emergency and climate change represents and poses a clear and present danger to life itself on the planet, and therefore everything must be done to save the planet, setting aside the fact that our emissions have been falling, China's keep going up, you want to hamper the U.S. economy further in order to do something that will actually not affect the climate, that global emissions will not be affected, like a drop in the ocean, basically, while huge polluters keep polluting and the U.S. gets nothing out of it. The idea that you could make all these dramatic changes, which is what they're pushing for. They want it. Even some of their own studies show it would do nothing to actually achieve the goal. But I think for some of them, the goal is to just do something, to feel like they're doing something and to control people's lives more. For some activists, for some statists, for some authoritarian-minded people on the left, that is the goal. Whether it works, quote-unquote, is almost besides the point. Right? If the U.S. is achieving, let's say, Paris Climate Accord level reductions in emissions without being in the Paris Accord, Does that really matter or are they focused on being in the agreement because that's the thing to do? And then there are requirements and there's more control. I actually think for some of them, that is the case. I don't want to apply that to all of them. I don't want to totally trash everyone's motivations. I don't think that that's fair. But I absolutely think for some of them, the climate stuff is just sort of the gift wrapping for what they want to do which is control people's lives and grow the government. Now, Biden, whatever he actually believes, is trying to walk this fine line of not completely stomping on the Constitution. By the way, he definitely get swatted down by the courts. There was a big case on very similar, relevant, related events and issues that just came out this term, the West Virginia case. That I think is another precedent that would indicate Biden could not go even further in his use of unilateral power or the administrative state or what have you through regulations to do what Congress has not done, will not do, etc. So he's trying to not totally violate his oath, perhaps here, while mollifying the implacable left wing of his party. And the point I was about to make was if your stated position is this is an existential crisis and we're going to do almost everything in our power and we might start to do things out of our power in order to stem the tide or at least make uh, a bluff towards stemming the tide. Couldn't you start by example, right, by your own example and not take a massive entourage 
to Massachusetts for a very short visit. That was my point about the carbon footprint here of Joe Biden's basically meaningless little like photo op there in Somerset, Mass., where the big thing that they'd been building up that they might do, they didn't do. And he just said some more words about this big problem that presumably they would have to admit they just contributed to a lot with it. You know, like, get the choppers ready, get the airplane ready, Air Force One, all the support staff, the beast, all of it, everyone who travels with the president, security, the journalists, all of that. If you're worried about carbon footprints, can't you just have the president walk out to the Rose Garden and give the exact same speech? Why not? What is the argument against that? And don't mention politics or optics because that shouldn't matter. The, the planet is in crisis. The planet itself is at risk. Why not have the president walk 10 feet? Reduce that carbon footprint exponentially. I would sort of like for them to explain that. I know it's not a very deep point. It's a superficial point. You might say it's skirting around the fundamental issue, which I've touched on a little bit here. If there's man-made climate change, I believe that that is a thing. What should be done about it is the big debate. And I think catastrophically harming the U.S. economy with a bunch of mandates and regulations that hurt people, that aren't affordable, that aren't realistic, that even if implemented perfectly while wreaking all of that destruction also wouldn't achieve anything on the climate. That's where I'm very much no longer on board. Like, it's like, I'll hop off right here. Thank you. But there are many people, including this White House, who insist this is the crisis of our time. Now, they're dealing with a lot of other crises, several of them of their own making, or at least they've contributed to on inflation, on energy costs, the border crisis. The list goes on. Baby formula, that's still a thing. Here's another crisis where they swear up and down and all the presidential Democratic debates, big applause lines. They tweet about it. They get all fired up. Climate change is it. Number one. Then it's like, all right, let's fly all the jets up the coast to go talk about it for a few minutes and then come back. There's just something incongruous about that, in my view. And this is not the only example of what you might point to as this type of hypocrisy. The worst hypocrisy, perhaps, comes from another person in the Biden administration. Someone who is particularly, I would say, almost uniquely insufferable and has been for a long time. You know his name. I actually talked about this with Maria Bartiromo on her show this morning. We will bring you that story. I'll have a few more questions about this. When we come back, John Kerry's adventures is our next related topic on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Guess what? The first frost, you know what was happening. You had to put on your windshield wipers to get literally the oil slick off the window. That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer. And why can't for the longest time Delaware had the highest cancer rate in the nation. I'm Guy Benson back on the show here. That was President Biden minutes ago in Massachusetts giving that speech that I was just talking about. And it sounded like he just said he had cancer. That's what I heard there. I don't think he probably meant that. I don't think he was breaking some news. It might have just been a strange stumble there as he was trying to illustrate a point about climate change. Windshield windshield wipers and oil slicks. And that's why so many people, he said, how so many people and I have cancer or I and so many people have cancer. It was just an awkward phrasing. So people are sending that around already. Now, before the break, I mentioned the questionable decision to fly somewhere with this massive presidential entourage and the motorcades and everything to just give a speech on climate change. When there's a perfectly lovely series of locations on the White House campus that could have been used for exactly that same purpose with much less pollution uh, pollution generated to do so. Relatedly, here's John Kerry, the climate czar, the green czar in the Biden administration. There's a story in the New York Post that's been tracking the action on Kerry's family private jet, which is a Gulfstream. And since Biden took office in January 2021, the Post reports that this jet has made 48 trips lasting more than 60 hours. And releasing an estimated 715,886 pounds or two or 325 metric tons of carbon dioxide just since Biden took office. Now, I know the argument is this is silly. These are just conservatives nitpicking at the margins. They're not talking about the real issue here. But shouldn't people lead by example? And live the way that they say their values and ideology would, you would think, require. How many of us spent two years doing meetings by Zoom or on FaceTime? They couldn't do that to talk about climate change and very important issues. They have to fly to Switzerland or whatever. And yet they keep doing it over and over again. And I think there's some dissonance there. Their actions versus their words. And a muddled mess today from the president in Massachusetts. Katie Pavlich up next on The Guy Benson Show. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. Always glad to have you all along. Thank you. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. So in the last segment, we played that quick soundbite of the president in Massachusetts talking about climate change. He was talking about remembering as a kid where you had to, at the first frost, use your windshield wipers on the car because there was an oil slick on the windshield or something. And that's why he said, I and so many others have cancer. Well, the White House has now put out very quickly a clarifying remark about what he meant. The president does not have cancer, which is good, even though that is very much what one might have interpreted from what he said just a few minutes ago. Uh, Here's what the White House says. He was referring to in his youth, he had several non-melanoma skin cancers removed. But he does not have cancer, and he's a healthy 79-year-old. So I don't know if that counts as having cancer and what relevance it has to the point he was making. But for those people who were wondering, did the president just say he has cancer? The White House is letting us all and letting us all know and reassuring, uh, no, he he does not have cancer, despite that's kind of what he said. So uh, that's been cleaned up. That's been mopped up by the White House. Joining us now is Katie Pavlich editor at townhall.com, where I also work, and a Fox News contributor here, where I also work. So we are friends and colleagues twice over. We spent some time yesterday in New York together. And Katie, it's great to talk to you again. Great to be on, Guy. Thanks so much. You bet. So I actually want to start with something not political, not involving the news, but in, in involving something cool that you just did recently. And I mentioned it to you. I've had a few people mention it to me as well. There's this hit show. I think it's on Amazon Prime, if I'm not mistaken. It's an exclusive and original of Amazon Prime. It's called The Terminal List, and it stars Chris Pratt, who's a big Hollywood actor and uh, sort of like an A-lister. And it's a story about a military guy who's out on an op in the Middle East and things go terribly wrong. And he comes home and there's a threat to his life, and I won't give any spoilers beyond that, but that's generally the gist of this show, The Terminal List. And I was watching, just minding my own business, watching one of the episodes, I think it might have been episode two, and there was a major terrorist leader, fictional, in this show that they were trying to go after and kill, and there's a scene where there are people, including Chris Pratt, in a bar, it's a military town, people's phones start buzzing, there's some breaking news, and then everyone looks up at the TV, and there is Fox News on the TV, and Fox News is breaking in with some major, uh, some major you know, coverage about this breaking event, and wouldn't you know it, here's what it sounded like, see if you recognize this voice in Cut 36. We do, in fact. 
Iranian weapons specialist Dr. Jahan Kahani was killed in an elite U.S. military operation conducted in northern Syria. His attack comes just weeks after a failed mission to capture Kahani resulted in the death of 12 Navy SEALs. The Pentagon released the following statement, the world, especially the Syrian people, can sleep soundly knowing that one of the Middle East's top chemical weapons experts is no longer a threat to those who value freedom. All right, so everyone's stoked. They're cheering. Uh, this fictional terrorist has been liquidated. That's the report coming from Katie Pavlich of Fox News, our guest here. Katie, this was extremely cool. I kind of knew it was coming, and it still caught me by surprise. How on earth did this come about? So, well, thank you so much for uh, bringing it up. My good friend Jack Carr uh, wrote the book The Terminalist, the fiction, five years ago. And a friend of his, who was also a Navy SEAL, handed it to Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt read it, wanted to turn it into a movie or a series. He contacted Antoine Fuqua, who's done a lot of work with Denzel Washington on The Equalizer. He also did Training Day. And they said, let's turn this into an Amazon series. And so last summer, when they needed a cameo for a, a news anchor, my good friend Jack Carr called me and said, hey, do you want to be part of this series? And I said, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Got a letter from SAG, which is the, the actors' union, saying I'm technically allowed to join now. So, if, you know, you do one thing once, and that's what happens. But um, it was—I'm really happy about the show. Uh, all the, you know, Hollywood critics hated it. The country loves it. It's been number one on Amazon for three weeks. So, I'm very happy for my good friend Jack Carr, and grateful for Chris Pratt for taking on the project. And uh, yeah, it was really cool to be part of it. So, yeah, it, it's been. A smash hit, as you pointed out, just, you know, crushing it on Amazon Prime, number one on that platform. Critics hate it for various reasons. Not surprised. There's also like a derangement about Chris Pratt in certain weird corners of the Internet on the left. They just can't stand him for some reason. He is generally just sort of beloved by most Americans who follow his work. And I think it's a compelling show. I think it's a really interesting story. And just to see one of my good friends in the show playing herself on our network, it was just like kind of this crazy out-of-body experience. It must have been very, even more so for you. Did you basically just like record that at a Fox studio and Fox just signed off, yes, you can use our graphics and make it look like Fox? Like how did that work? I just did it. I wanted to go out to California to the set, but it was COVID crazy time. So I just uh, asked a friend who has a little uh, a van studio, Thomas Digital, if I could contract them to do it. And uh, they said that they would just help me out. So I, I did it then, sent it in, and uh, the rest is history. So you, know, you, you mentioned Chris Pratt. I do want to say when I flew out to L.A. for the premiere a couple weeks ago, I was able to go to that, and it was amazing to see the Best Defense Foundation bring in a bunch of World War II veterans to the red carpet uh, to honor them and their service. And Chris Pratt oh, was cool. photos with them. So it just was an amazing all-American experience, and I was super grateful to be to be part of it. So now, now I'm curious about this premiere. Did you get to meet some of the big <laughs> actors from the show? Was there like a I big did. party and a dinner? And like, I know for I've actually been to a movie premiere once in New York City. That was a cool thing. I got to meet Harrison Ford and Kevin Bacon, uh, which was kind of this <laughs> wild thing when I was something like 19 years old or something like that. But that's a movie where it's two hours and you're done. This is a whole series. Do you do you sit and watch an episode? Do you watch the whole yeah. thing? How does that work? 
Yeah, so it was it was held at the Directors Guild of America. Uh, we we walked. There was the the red carpet where all the stars were. I was not on the red carpet, but I was in the the back. And there's you know the how the, dare the, they? The you you are the- a star, Katie. You are a star, and you should have been on the red carpet. <laughs> Well, I, thank you, Guy. I appreciate that. Um, I, I was able to get there a little later, um, but I did. I didn't get to meet Chris Pratt, unfortunately. But we we went in. We watched. You know, he came out and introduced everybody who's in the film, including Jack Carr, who's also an executive producer on the show. Uh, we watched an episode in the theater. The red, you know, the red curtains closed, and then after that, we went to a real bona fide Hollywood after party where I met Antoine Fuqua and everybody was just so, you know, great and so much fun to to just be there. And they really, you know, went all in on the series. Um, And it was really cool actually to land at LAX and driving to the hotel. You know, you see the big billboards for the show and then also see the the billboards on Sunset Boulevard. So it just was, like you said, kind of an out-of-body experience. But um, I'm just so excited for, again, my friend Jack Carr, who, you know, wrote this fiction novel hoping to have a career uh in in writing he's on his fifth book now it's called in the blood um and to see his first book turned into this mega hit tv series i'm not i'm not surprised if you know him but i'm just so you know excited that he was able to to do it and to bring in so many of veterans that he knows and to really pay attention to the details of you know the firearms and the the workbench and the deployment and what that looks like so they really did a good job of making it realistic and being respectful of the SEAL community. So it was just awesome. Yeah, the Navy SEAL community out there in Coronado in Southern California, which is where a lot of this is set. And so if you haven't heard of the Terminal List or you haven't seen it yet, you can catch Katie Pavlich starring and a few other people as well on Amazon Prime. And uh, we've been enjoying it so far. I'm a, a couple episodes deep. All right, Katie, now from the fictional world to the real world, I wanted to ask you, and you're the perfect person to weigh in on this, the story out of Indiana that's gotten some attention but maybe not enough attention, there was a shopping mall mass shooting in progress that could have, it looks like, been truly horrific yet again. There was a suspect who showed up armed with three weapons, two rifles and a handgun, if I remember correctly, but this person was apparently hell-bent on killing a bunch of people, and the shooting began. And unfortunately, in those first few chaotic seconds, he was able to shoot a number of people and kill three of them. But the killing spree was put to a very quick and dramatic end by a good guy with a gun. And the more we learn about this confrontation, sort of the more incredible and heroic it is, I know we hear a lot from some people in the sort of gun control activism community that good guys with a gun are a myth. It doesn't really happen. Uh, This is a clear-cut example of this phenomenon saving lives indisputably, Katie. What are your thoughts on what we are learning out of Indiana? My first thought is what an incredible young man. His name is Eli Dickin. He's 22 years old. He was carrying his, his firearm at the time that this happened uh, in a place that actually was technically a gun-free zone by mall policy, but he decided to carry anyway. Um, and he was able to uh, you know, stop the threat within 15 seconds, saving countless lives as a result. The second thing is that this happens quite often. Uh, there are millions of self-defense cases like this every single year. They just don't get as much attention. Um, as, as this case. And, you know, for all of the, the folks on the gun control left who have 
argued that only police officers should have firearms, that there are no good guys with guns. Well, that is debunked every single day, especially in this instance. Um, and thank God for armed citizens like him who are able to fill that void when the police are minutes away, seconds count, right? So he was able to be there and, and stop the, the perpetrator from killing more people. Um, so, yeah, it's just a perfect example of why constitutional carry has been an important thing across the country, why concealed carry is, is crucial, and why gun-free zones uh, are actually only just put people into further uh, jeopardy when it comes to their safety, especially when there aren't police officers on every corner. Well, the guy who showed up to murder people was not going to respect the mall policy of a gun-free zone. Right. And so thank exactly. God that the law-abiding citizen who had his – constitutionally protected handgun on him was there and was armed and was able to save a bunch of lives. And this does happen. We gave an example recently in West Virginia. There was a would-be mass shooting at a party. One of the guests at the party, a woman, went to her handbag, got her gun, shot the shooter who had a rifle dead. There was another example at a school where there was a school resource officer who saw someone approaching the building coming to commit a school shooting, and the officer engaged and put that person down. It does happen, and yet a lot of people seem very invested in the idea that it doesn't happen or it doesn't happen enough for it to really be a good argument. A lot of them are pointing to this New York Times reporting this week that analyzed a bunch of mass shootings and found that over this period of time, you know, there are hundreds of these defined a certain way mass shootings, and only, quote-unquote, only 22 of them were confirmed to have been stopped by an armed individual, whether a citizen or an off-duty officer or a security guard or something like that. They found only 22 examples of that. And people are saying, see, it's, it's not really that many cases. Number one, Katie, I'm not really sure exactly how they're doing that math and what those metrics look like. Uh, number two, would you rather not have had those 22 mass shootings thwarted or stopped early by people who were armed? And most importantly, maybe number three, how many of the mass shootings were not stopped by an armed citizen because no one there was armed? Like, I don't really think that these statistics prove the point that some people think that they do. Well, and a lot of the time in these, these, these statistics that the gun control groups slap together themselves for political purposes, they actually count self-defense cases against armed perpetrators as gun violence. That's usually how they count them, so they don't count it as a, a good guy with a gun scenario and stopping a mass shooting. They actually count it in their bucket of, of gun violence so they can continue their, their narrative about that. Um, the fact is that you know armed, armed citizens are a deterrent, uh, and then there's also been this argument that, well, police officers are the highly trained people. Um, well, as we saw in Uvalde, we had 400 officers who were, quote, highly trained and did nothing, uh, whereas you see armed citizens every day uh, stopping threats against themselves or, in this case, stopping violent threats against other people as well. Um, and to people's surprise, they will they usually don't think that, you know, police officers have more training, but actually armed citizens who take on the, the big responsibility of carrying a firearm themselves train far more often uh, in a longer fashion than police departments do. Um, so armed citizens are a good thing. The statistics bear it out. If you look at you know real data, not the data that is politically polluted by these gun control groups, um, and armed citizens have saved the day, including uh, this week with the 22-year-old yeah. uh, Eli. And, and I'm, and I think that you know the the police, the armed police are great, 
in almost all circumstances. It's also not foolproof. They can't be everywhere all the time. And apparently this young man that you're talking about in Indiana, he put the shooter down and took him out within 15 seconds of the shooting beginning. The authorities actually put out an updated timeline on this. He fired 10 shots at the guy and hit him eight times from quite a distance. That is quite a performance from that hero. Very briefly, Katie, about a minute, a little less left. Any thoughts from you on AOC and Ilhan Omar pretending to be handcuffed as they were like quasi arrested by the Supreme Court yesterday? What a show. Just such frauds. That's all I have to say about that. The, the, yesterday is a perfect example of how they you know, deliver policy, how they live their lives. Everything is just a big show uh, with a little substance behind it. Yeah, and how they manipulate easily and successfully in many cases the media. They wanted the images. They got the images. But other people had camera angles from a different vantage point, And you could see that they were not handcuffed and they forgot that they were play acting briefly because they did the power fist. And then the hand came back down behind their back. It was just Magic. amazing. <laughs> uh, Katie Pavlich, always fun to chat with you. Editor at townhall.com, Fox News contributor, and makes that really terrific cameo appearance on the terminal list. Good stuff, Katie. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. Talk to you soon. Have a good one. We'll be right back right after this on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. I want to play this soundbite for you. This was the American Federation of Teachers Conference. Of course, that group led by Randy Weingarten a very destructive force in our country for children. And it's been worse than ever during the pandemic and all of the meddling in the so-called science that she did. We talked about the poll that this group commissioned with the results coming out this week that are just disastrous for the teachers' unions because the American people have seen what their priorities are and they're not impressed. And a lot of the woke stuff just isn't working. It's turning people off. Well, Val Demings, a Democrat running against Marco Rubio in Florida, she spoke at the conference. She loves Randy Weingarten. Cut 30. I want to thank you. know, leadership is not easy. Uh, it might look easy. Some people make it look easy. Leadership is uh, it's not easy. And we are so thankful. I really do believe uh, in giving honor to whom honor uh, is due. And I want to start by giving honor to uh, your president, the amazing uh, Randy Weingarten. Come on, y'all. Let's give her a round of applause. Give honor to honor is due. They love Randy Weingarten in the Democratic Party. They rely on a lot of her campaign cash. They would double and triple down on all of this stuff, even though the mask is off. Pay attention. Elections matter. And that's a big Senate race down in Florida. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a fresh hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson, your host. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. We recommend that if you cannot listen between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we enter our middle hour today. The Dow closes up 47 points 
to 31,874. So in the green, not by much. That's the update on the markets. Let's get right to our next guest, U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. She authored the book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman. She also has a podcast. She serves on multiple committees. She's a regular here. Senator, good to have you back. It is good to be with you. Thank you so much. I've been playing this clip for a few different people over the course of the week, even last week. This was a year ago. President Joe Biden was on another network, one of our competitor networks, and he was talking about the possibility of inflation. There were people warning about it, including Democratic economists. They were very concerned about all the trillions in spending. Biden was trying to reassure Americans and tamp that stuff down, saying, don't worry about it. Cut 32. This was one year ago. I don't know anybody, including Larry Summers, who's a friend of mine, who's worried about inflation. That wasn't true at the time. Larry Summers had been warning about inflation related to the so-called rescue plan for months up to that point. But Biden said, I don't know anybody who's worried about inflation. Here we are, Senator, a year later. And it appears that President Biden is talking to a very small circle of advisors inside the West Wing of the White House. If he were out and about with me in Tennessee, if he were talking to people that are working two jobs trying to make ends meet in this Bidenflation economy, he would know people are terribly worried about it. And, uh, you know, Guy, when I'm out and about, I talk to people and they say 9.1% inflation, my goodness, the things I'm buying are up 15%, 20%. The cost of gasoline has doubled. The cost of diesel has doubled from what people were paying this time in 2020. And they are struggling to put gas in the tank, to put food on the table, to get children ready to go back to school next month. And they're already thinking about how they're going to buy supplies and clothes that the kids need for going back to school. Yeah, and I think that the real damning implication here, the indictment of Biden, is that a year ago he was claiming he didn't know anyone that was worried about this. He should have known because there were prominent people from the Obama administration in which he was the vice president who were very loudly talking about what a mistake that $2 trillion spending bill was. They tried to spend $5 trillion more in Build Back Better, and he just said, no, I don't know anyone who's worried about that. And it wasn't just predictable, the inflation. It was predicted. That's the whole point. They were absolutely wrong about it, and that's why I think so much of their spin these days doesn't carry a lot of water with a lot of people. Now, one of the only people, Senator, in your upper chamber where you serve on the other side of the aisle who has taken any of this even remotely seriously is Joe Manchin. And they are seething at him again, the West Virginia Democrat, a moderate. He killed Build Back Better, thank goodness, would be in much worse shape with inflation if he hadn't done that. All the other Democrats except Cinema were on board for that, $5 trillion. Then they were dreaming up this new package of Tax increases, like hundreds of billions of dollars of tax increases for small businesses with a recession potentially looming. And Manchin came out just a few days ago and said, I'm not going to go for that. No tax increases, no climate stuff. They are furious at him. Here's his response to the critics, and there are many, in Cut 29. They don't understand inflation is the number one critical factor that we have 
that's hurting every family and harming our economy right now, it's inflation. And I'm very much concerned. I have never changed my position. I'm not stringing anybody along. All I said, can't we make sure that what we do does not add fuel to the fire? That's it. Senator Blackburn, are you surprised that there aren't more people in the Democratic coalition who seem to be sort of in touch with reality on this issue the way Manchin at least is? It is very surprising when you look at some of the Democrats that are up for re-election and you look at their states and you know that people in their states are saying exactly what West Virginians are saying to Joe Biden, uh, to Joe Manchin. It is inflation, inflation, inflation. It is the number one issue. It's issues number one, two, and three. And people are really fearful of where this administration is taking us. You've got a president that wants to implement the Green New Deal by executive order and circumvent Congress. You have a Democrat leadership in each chamber that is saying we're just going to go full steam ahead with taxes, with Green New Deal, running up inflation, and the intentionality of what they're doing and how they're doing it is causing concern for people that are Democrat, Republican, Independent. They're very uncomfortable with where this White House is heading with this agenda, and they're looking for people that are Democrats and Republicans. And these Democrats up for election, they should be speaking out more and calling their leadership to account and defending the people that they represent who absolutely cannot afford all of this. Yeah. Well, the the voting record, unfortunately, for some of these folks, and we talked about it yesterday, Hassan and Cortez Masto and Warnock and Kelly, they've all voted lockstep with the party leadership on all of this stuff. So they don't really have a leg to stand on if they want to complain about the consequences of their own votes, their own policies. They're just generic Democrats who salute no matter what the uh, the bosses tell them to do. And the bosses running the show are very unpopular right now. Their policies very unpopular. And thank goodness we have Joe Manchin tapping the brakes on some of the spending seems like the White House has backed off of the climate emergency declaration uh, a little bit there, at least. Uh, for now, we shall see. In the meantime, Senator, I'm not sure if you caught this. Secretary Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, was on Capitol Hill testifying this week. And here was one exchange about electric vehicles that's gotten some attention. Cut one. Listen here. Is the Biden administration... Um actively pursuing high energy prices in order to force Americans into electric vehicles? Of course not. The more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. So he's out there pushing electric vehicles. That's fine as far as it goes, except those vehicles are largely unaffordable for many Americans, point one, point two. I don't know. Do these people know that electricity doesn't just manifest like manna from heaven it's like it, it actually requires uh, a lot of energy to and and carbon footprint to generate energy and and electricity as well and it costs money and that 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 cost goes up a lot of the time i'm just trying to figure out what the actual position is here what the argument is to the american people 
Well, and what they're doing is just ignoring the fact that your electricity, you've got coal-powered plants, you right. have natural gas plants, and it takes in all of the above. Some areas can generate electricity by solar or wind or water. There are other areas that are not able to do that. Nuclear is something that in the Tennessee Valley area where I I live, we have a lot of nuclear power. And what people are looking at and saying, hey, wait a minute, natural gas is a clean fuel. Why is it that you continue to say it all has to be electric? We can't afford this electric vehicle. And the other part of this is who benefits from these lithium batteries? China is making many of the components for that. China is out here mining all the lithium that we mapped and charted in yep. Afghanistan, and they're cornering that market. Who is it that benefits from solar powers? Right, and and these, are, these are complex issues, Senator, and I think a lot of that nuance just gets lost. I think telling the American people, oh, yeah, gas prices is bad, get an electric car, that is not going to cut it for most people. Marsha Blackburn, U.S. Senator of Tennessee. Thank you, ma'am, on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. I'd like to hop across the Atlantic Ocean and briefly comment on the latest doings in U.K. politics and check in on what our British cousins are up to. Boris Johnson, the prime minister, is stepping down. He will remain PM through this parliamentary recess, sort of a figurehead, until the new leader of his party is selected. That person will become prime minister up until the next elections and quite possibly beyond. Johnson was just being battered by a series of controversies and scandals, and he was being undermined and pressured from within his own conservative party. And eventually it became too much. He announced a few weeks ago that he would be stepping down. So the race is on to replace him. And in fact, there's some news today. A number of people threw their hat in that ring and they've been going through an elimination process and whittling the list down to two. There'll be a runoff, a head-to-head matchup between Foreign Secretary Liz Truss and former Finance Minister Rishi Sunak. They're both Tories, both conservatives. My understanding is Truss is more conservative than Sunak, but he's a more polished and slicker communicator. She might have a slight edge. The results of this weeks-long process will be announced September the 5th, and then the Tories will have a new leader and the country will have a new prime minister. By the way, if Truss wins, that will be the U.K.'s third female prime minister. All three have been conservatives. If Sunak wins, that will be the first prime minister of color over in the U.K., just sort of an interesting note there. But today was the swan song for Boris Johnson doing prime minister's questions, where the PM stands at the dispatch box and fields questions from members, and sometimes it gets rather rollicking and boisterous, and there are some memorable moments. They do this frequently, regularly over there. And this was Boris's last go-round as prime minister before the recess. And at the very end of the session, Prime Minister Johnson wanted to reflect on his time, 
offer some thoughts and also some advice, and I think it's worth listening to. Cut 27. I want to use the last few seconds, Mr. Speaker, to give some words of advice to, uh, to my successor, whoever he or she uh, may be. Number one, stay close to the Americans, stick up for the Ukrainians, stick up for freedom and democracy everywhere. Cut taxes and deregulate wherever you can to make this the greatest place to live and invest, which it is. I love the Treasury, but remember that if we'd always listened to the Treasury, we wouldn't have built the M25 or the Channel Tunnel. Focus, focus on the road ahead. Focus on the road ahead, but always remember to check the rear view mirror. And remember, remember a bubble. It's not Twitter that counts. It's the people that sent us here. And you hear the roar of assent from his backbenchers, his side. They're not allowed to clap. They're technically not supposed to clap. So instead they say, hear, hear. But it just sounds like, like drunken yelling, basically. A great parliamentary tradition over in London. I like some of this. Stay close to the Americans. Yes, please. Stick up for the Ukrainians. He has. Cut taxes and deregulate. I think a lot of conservatives over there wish he would have done more on the conservative governance front, especially with the big majority that he helped win in 2019. I like this idea of focus on the road ahead, but always check in the rearview mirror. That's nice. And that last piece of advice could be sent directly to President Biden, like stitched on a pillow. It's not Twitter that counts. It's the people that sent us here. It really feels like the Democrats these days are governing by Twitter, their tribal bubble, at the expense of the people who actually elected them and Biden in particular and why. Good advice from Boris. Clear out the noise. And then he wrapped up with this in Cut 28. Boris Johnson. The last few years have been the greatest privilege of of my life. And it's true that I I helped to get the biggest Tory majority for 40 years and a a huge realignment in UK politics, Mr Speaker. We've transformed our democracy and restored our national independence, as my right honourable friend says. I've helped to get this country through a pandemic and helped save another country from barbarism. And frankly, that's enough to be going on with. Mission largely accomplished. For now, I want to thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. I want to thank all the wonderful staff of the House of Commons. I want to thank all my friends and colleagues. I want to thank my right friend uh, opposite, uh, Mr Speaker. Uh, I want to thank everybody here and hasta la vista, baby. Thank you. And then a few claps. Hasta la vista, baby. But of course, pronounced the British way, hasta la vista. Oh, good stuff. His number one legacy is Brexit. He campaigned for Brexit. The previous prime minister couldn't get it done because she wasn't a Brexiteer. And then he had to go call an election, win a huge electoral victory, then push through Brexit, which he did successfully. That's his biggest legacy. And in early September, the next Tory prime minister will be revealed. And with that, I just want to flash back briefly, it's a good excuse, to the final prime minister's questions for Margaret Thatcher in 1990, as she was finally about to relinquish power, forced out by her own party, but not before 11 years of transformative leadership. One of the most consequential and, in my view, best leaders in the history of the United Kingdom, 
Margaret Thatcher, when she was saying goodbye, her final session in the House of Commons, one of the labor members across the way stood up and challenged her, saying that basically, paraphrasing, one of her failures was the gap between rich and poor grew larger on her watch, which is not something to be proud of. And Thatcher started by pointing out actually everyone, every income group has gotten richer under the leadership of the conservative party, which her members loved. That was an accurate point to make. And then she picked apart, just dismantled very clearly and succinctly the folly and the misplaced obsession of income inequality that we see so often on the left. And here's how she put it in Cut 34. What the honorable member is saying is that he were rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That way you will never create the wealth for better social services as we have. And what a policy. Yes, he would rather have the poor poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That is a liberal policy. Yes, it came out. He didn't intend it to, but he did. Just savage and so well put. And what a policy. Ah, I'd call her the goat, but I think Winston Churchill might want a word. But what a terrific stroll down memory lane on this day where it's relevant. The final prime minister's questions for Boris Johnson and the next prime minister of our great ally will be announced in a matter of weeks. I'll be doing the show from London for a couple days next month. Perhaps we'll get some insight into that landscape while I'm over there. We will take a break. We'll come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the week and the show today, it's The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free of charge to all of you on demand every day. Thank you for listening. So I've gotten quite a few people reaching out to me, as tends to be the case around these things and around these events, asking about yesterday's vote in the House of Representatives on this piece of legislation titled the Respect for Marriage Act, which passed the House pretty overwhelmingly yesterday, last evening. The vote was 267 to 157 in favor, with almost 50 Republicans joining with all the Democrats to pass this bill. And people have been messaging me and texting me and sending emails and that sort of thing, asking, what does this mean? Why is this happening? Is it going to pass the Senate? I thought gay marriage was already legal. What's going on here? And if you're not paying close attention to all of these things, which I think many people aren't, they've got big things on their plate right now. It can be a little bit confusing. So I'm going to try to walk through and give you the facts of what happened, some analysis of what I think it means, and I'll sprinkle in some of my own opinion because I always try to be transparent and open about that with all of you. So I would have voted for this bill. I'm glad that it passed, and it wasn't even close. It was more than a 100-vote margin in the House. And 47 of the yes votes were furnished by Republicans, including some pretty conservative Republicans on that roster. One member of GOP leadership voted yes, Elise Stefanik. So did the NRCC chairman this cycle, Tom Emmer, and then 45 others. 
the House Republican leadership was not whipping this vote, meaning often the leaders will say the Republican position is this and we're going to urge our members, pressure our members, whip the members, not literally, to vote with the party. And on this vote, on this bill, they didn't do that. They said this is a pure conscience vote. Vote your conscience. And roughly one out of four House Republicans broke with the rest of their fellow conference members and decided to ensure a large bipartisan passage for this bill. Now, it is true that this bill, this legislation, which may or may not survive the Senate, we'll get to that and my thoughts here in a moment, is, at least in my estimation, redundant. Same-sex marriage is the law of the land, has been since 2015, and the Obergefell decision at the Supreme Court. Whether you agree with that decision or not, it's been on the books, it's been binding precedent in law for these last seven years or so. There have been many same-sex marriages in the country since then. And for reasons that I've explained multiple times here on the air and in writing and on social media, because I get bombarded with questions about it, I don't think Obergefell, that decision is going anywhere. I realize that after Roe versus Wade was overturned in the Dobbs case, a lot of people, especially Democrats, were saying, well, guess what's next? Obergefell, gay marriage, contraception, interracial marriage. They're coming for everything next. And I built my case saying, no, I don't think that's right. Look at the majority decision written by Justice Alito in Dobbs. He dealt with that fear mongering directly. He took it on headfirst in the opinion itself, explaining why it was separate and distinct and different and not affecting at all those other precedents on those other issues. I also noted that if you read some of the concurring opinions, it does not seem like there would be five votes on the Supreme Court to overturn something like Obergefell. Indeed, just recently in the 2020 term at the Supreme Court, the court expanded LGBT rights in the Bostock decision that was authored by Justice Neil Gorsuch, a conservative member. That was a six to three decision expanding gay rights. So I think it is very far-fetched to believe that if somehow there was a series of legal challenges around the country to Obergefell and they wormed their way up through the court system and they landed at the doorstep of the Supreme Court, I think it is, as I was saying, far-fetched, very far-fetched, that there would be five votes to overturn Obergefell. I don't even think they would get to four votes even to accept the case. You need four justices to say, yes, we will grant cert on a case. I am not convinced they would get to four. There might be one or two, possibly three votes on the court, in my estimation, to overturn Obergefell, nowhere near a majority. I don't think they would take the case. So I'm just restating what I've already said before. I think a lot of that panic, which is, I think, understandable if you are not familiar with the way all of this works, And you don't necessarily have a more nuanced view of jurisprudence and the political moment and all of it. I can see why people might be worried if people they trust are telling them to be worried. I just think that people in those positions shouldn't be stirring the pot like that and scaring people in a way that actually isn't accurate. Planting deep seeds of serious doubt and concern and worry when I think a dispassionate analysis 
that I've tried to offer here explains or elucidates why a lot of those fears are not founded. I've made all those points before. I just wanted to reiterate them because then you have some people saying, well, why are they voting on this at all? I thought this was already the law because of the Supreme Court. I thought gay marriage was legal. Yes, it is everywhere in all 50 states. That is extremely unlikely to change for the reasons that I just laid out. What this was, this vote yesterday, was almost like a backup plan in advance. In the event, the highly, highly unlikely event that Obergefell were to fall, then Congress would be on the record having passed a bill enshrining or codifying same-sex marriage. So it would not revert back to a situation where all of a sudden gay marriages would not be recognized. That's the point of the bill. And what's interesting about this legislation that passed in the House yesterday is that it's actually not crafted in a way that would, again, in the highly unlikely event or circumstance of a Obergefell going away, it would not require every state in the country to allow same-sex marriages to take place in that state, but it would require every state to recognize same-sex marriages that happen legally somewhere within the United States. It's almost like a reverse Defense of Marriage Act. It's like the inverse of that law back in the 90s under the full faith and credit clause. Josh Herr at the Daily Wire, who's an attorney there, he was explaining this on Twitter, and I thought that was very useful. He wrote, under this bill, states must respect marriages performed in other states. States could still decide not to perform same-sex marriages But for Obergefell, the Supreme Court case, this is a moderate bill, he wrote, does not go so far as to require states to allow same-sex marriage in the unlikely event Obergefell gets overturned. Republicans can support this bill respecting the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution without endorsing same-sex marriage necessarily. So actually it's a moderate, reasonable, kind of a compromise bill that would protect a status quo in a way that I think could actually maximize support on Capitol Hill and within the public. And this is a big difference, I would say, between the way that the Democrats have approached abortion versus the way they've approached this issue. On abortion, when they say, oh, we want to codify Roe versus Wade, they put together a bill that was monstrous. It was grotesque. It was radical and extreme, and we've ticked through the reasons why. Totally unacceptable, even to pro-choice Republicans. And I think if a lot of pro-choice Democrats knew what was in the bill, they would oppose it. Polling shows that a lot of the extreme stuff that the Democrats put into their failed so-called Roe codification bill is deeply unpopular with the American people. On public opinion, we've gone through poll after poll showing that The public's views on abortion are messy, sometimes contradictory, very complex, and divided. That is increasingly not the case on gay marriage. Gallup poll out last month, I believe, the latest on this issue from Gallup, and they've tracked it every year since the 90s. 71% in that poll, 71%, a supermajority of Americans are in favor of same-sex marriage, legalized same-sex marriage, 71%. That is up from 27% in 1996. When I was in middle school, 
Only about a quarter of the country was for same-sex marriage. Now it's 71%. That shift has been profound, and it has also been bipartisan. A majority of Republicans in the country now support same-sex marriage, 55% in the 2021 Gallup poll, a majority. Now, you might be in the other 45%. That's okay. We can disagree. But it is undeniable that there's been this massive change which is why you get to a number as high as 71% in favor of same-sex marriage, that has not happened on the question of abortion. So when there's a bill that is reasonable and fairly moderate and designed to form consensus and actually get something passed on same-sex marriage, you can get something like 47 House Republicans to sign on. By contrast, the extreme abortion bill that the Democrats put together, lying by saying it was Roe codification, it went way beyond that, much more extreme, that received the support of exactly zero Republicans, including lifelong pro-choice Republicans. In fact, there were a handful of Democrats, not many, but a few of them who couldn't go along with it. So if anything, the opposition to the Democrats' abortion bill was bipartisan, whereas the support for this same-sex marriage bill was heavily bipartisan. That underscores the difference between these two issues, gay rights and abortion. They are not the same. Sometimes people lump them together like they come as a package deal. These social issues, they're a package deal. If someone believes one thing on one issue, you can predict what they believe on the other thing. Increasingly, that is not true. Maybe at one point it was closer to true, not anymore. And I think just what we've witnessed over these last few weeks on public opinion in polling On congressional action from the Supreme Court, on all three fronts, there have been vivid illustrations of why these issues are very different. I have a few more things to say on this. Let me take a quick break. Come right back and finish my thought. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on my Benson show, let's return to this piece of legislation that passed the House yesterday on same-sex marriage. 47 Republicans in the House yesterday going along with it. This is, again, effectively an insurance plan, a backup plan, just in case something that is almost certain not to happen somehow happens. And maybe it can help tamp down some of those fears, some of the hysteria about gay marriage going away. That came and arrived in the wake of Dobbs from well-meaning people who were genuinely confused and worried and from people who I think were cynically spreading that fear even though they knew better. Well, this is the way to actually do it. In fact, what this Supreme Court has been doing recently in a couple major cases, including this term, they have been telling lawmakers to do their job, to make laws. It's like, okay, legislators, you need to legislate. And I think a lot of people in the legislative branch have come to rely on the rapacious executive to do their job for them, for the courts to do their job for them. And what the court, this court, the Roberts Court, has been saying over and over again, including in some of these high-profile cases and rulings, saying, no, if you're a lawmaker, this is your province. This is where you're supposed to do your work. And so, lo and behold, Congress has gone to work here cooked up a bill that's actually pretty good and reasonable. It doesn't have a bunch of poison pills in it. 
It doesn't cross a bunch of red lines that would give designed excuses to the opposition to vote no, and then you demagogue them, right? You put things that you know that they can't support in there, and then you attack them for not voting yes. That's one of the oldest political tricks in the book. Like, look at these homophobes, blah, blah, blah. They actually went out of their way in a bipartisan manner not to do that, and that's why they got 47 House Republican votes. Is that as many as I would like to see? No. I also recognize things take time. It is a massive departure from what the votes would have looked like even a decade ago. Even when I first started following politics, it would have been nowhere near that number. And in some ways, I think Republicans in elective office are still catching up. There's this gap between where the public is going and where they are at this point. But I don't want to harp on that and focus on the Republicans who voted no for various reasons, some perhaps better than others. I think the number 47 is really big, all things considered. And it represents progress where the goal is to actually come together and make progress and get something done as opposed to scoring points and torching the opposition and engaging in demagoguery. Now, what about the Senate? Because the House can pass it by a big margin, 267, 157, fine. But if it can't get 60 votes in the Senate in order to pass a cloture vote, overcoming the legislative filibuster, then it could go on to majority passage. You need 60 votes in the Senate to clear that hurdle. Is that possible? I think the answer is yes. There are a few Republicans who are on the record already in the Senate. Collins, Murkowski, I think Portman, who are solid yeses already. You'd need 10 to get to 60. Already we're seeing a handful of others saying that they're open to it. They're inclined to vote for it. They'll take a good hard look at it. I went through my mental list of Senate Republicans and came up with a roster of roughly a dozen that I think could be in play for this. And there's a fair amount of overlap to the Republicans who voted to advance the post-Uvalde bill. Whether you like that or not, I think that's probably similar to the universe that you would need. And I think it's absolutely plausible. I think it's actually possible that Mitch McConnell might come out for this especially the way that it's structured, as I explained earlier. They structured this and framed it, I think, in a very clever, conciliatory way that achieves meaningful things while also making it as attractive as possible to a more conservative party to get some of those votes on board because they're going to need 10-plus in the Senate. Now, I'm not going to go out on a limb and predict that it is going to pass the Senate, but I think that there is maybe 50-50 odds, maybe better. I'm feeling more bullish almost by the hour, as more Republicans go on the record on this, I think this thing could pass. Then Biden would sign it. That would be the backup law of the land behind the Supreme Court precedent. A lot of people who are really scared about this might have their minds put at ease just a little bit. I think it is a reasonable piece of legislation. It's also a very low-stakes vote because Obergefell is the binding precedent in the country. Gay marriage is legal. In all 50 states right now, has been for years, not going anywhere. So why not vote for this? Take the issue off the table. It has 71 percent support in the country. We have much bigger challenges, even on some of these social issues to grapple with in this country. Same-sex marriage, in my opinion, should not be one of them at this point. And I say that as someone who is in a same-sex marriage. So, you know, you need to know that about me. That's where I'm coming from on this. But that is the who, what, where, when, and why.
behind what happened in the House yesterday and what might come in the next few days or weeks in the United States Senate. We'll be watching it. That's my briefing on it. And if and when there are updates, we will bring those to you. When we come back, it's the final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Dr. Marty McCary is here. He wrote a piece blowing the whistle on a COVID-related scandal in the public health bureaucracy. You're going to want to hear those details straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. The time has come for the Wednesday happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, that's the whole show. 5 to 6 Eastern is this final hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. It is refreshing. We recommend it. 21 plus only. It's an alcoholic beverage. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. TheLongDrink.com. They're expanding across the country, and you can check out where they're sold near you or order online at that website, thelongdrink.com. Our website here is guybensonshow.com. The podcast is free every day on demand. Guybensonshow.com. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on both Twitter and Instagram. We are pleased to welcome back to the program now Dr. Marty McCary, a Fox News contributor, surgeon, and professor of health policy at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, author of the book The Price We Pay, what broke American healthcare at Marty McCary, M A K A R Y, on Twitter. And doctor, welcome back. Great to be with you, guy. I referenced earlier in the week, just briefly, and I actually wrote at townhall.com at greater length about a piece you co authored on Substack. It was Barry Weiss's platform. You and another doctor teamed up to kind of blow the whistle, really on what a number of public health officials have been privately saying. Tell us about the genesis of this essay, who your co-author is, and why you think it was important to write. Great. Well, thanks for having me. Tracy Hogue is an MD-PhD who I co-authored this piece with. We did some investigative reporting because there's a lot of smart people that work at the NIH and FDA and CDC who are not on TV These are high-level officials, and it turns out in talking to them anonymously under confidentiality, many of them are extremely frustrated that they cannot voice their concern. They told us that people are getting bad advice out there, and they can't say anything. They've told us that they feel that they're watching a horror movie, and they're forced to watch it. They can't close their eyes. So what we found was that there's not this unified lockstep consensus within the scientific community in these agencies It's just the political presentation of it. And they would focus a lot on children and the policies around children, Guy. Yeah, and I think that that's where you guys definitely spent most of your time sort of discussing and and giving examples from that area. There is one quote from an unnamed official who says, quote, it seems criminal that we put out the recommendations to give mRNA COVID vaccines to babies without good data. And 
number one, doctor, I'd like you to delve more deeply into that. I know you and I have discussed that here before, but it wasn't just you. Apparently, there were people on the inside within these agencies who were upset, even embarrassed by what their agencies were doing in the absence of good, robust, or in some cases, really any meaningful data. And why don't we just start there? Sure. Well, first of all, the Pfizer vaccine trial failed. There was no statistical significance among the children under five who got vaccinated versus did not get vaccinated. We call that a failed trial. With the Moderna vaccine, the efficacy was 4% in babies, and that was not statistically significant. In other words, in that subgroup, it also failed. Now, they tried hard to say, well, even though there was no clinical benefit, look, you see some antibodies formed after three doses of the vaccine. And if you look at the specific symptom of symptomatic COVID, there, were, there was an 80% efficacy. Well, that was based on three individual children. You can't say there's an 80% efficacy based on three kids. And when they ran that through a statistical test, that test was not significant. In other words, these are our standard tools in science to tell us whether or not there's a signal in the data. The studies failed. Why are we even doing clinical research studies if the CDC and FDA made up their mind before the studies are done? Let's go back to the days of snake oil or the king declaring that everybody should take something because this is a slap in the face to science. It's making a mockery of the process. And these people in these agencies are smart. They are fed up and they're leaving in droves, by the way. Everyone from the Vaccine Research Center leadership has left. There's tons of vacancies. The two vaccine experts at the highest level, the two top experts at the FDA quit in protest over political interference. That is what we're seeing in Exodus right now. Now, I feel like political interference in the science is a scandal. And whenever there was even a hint of it under the previous administration, you had blaring headlines and outrage. There has been politicized so-called science on the other side of the covid debate now for the entire Biden administration, certainly. We know the teachers unions were meddling in this and getting the official guidance changed and altered, not based on data, but based on a political agenda. Here we have some of the examples that you're raising with your co-author in this piece at Substack. On the point of children and vaccines, especially young children, you've probably seen the more full updated data. But my understanding is that very few parents – have actually taken up the CDC or FDA on their recommendations on vaccinating young children against COVID. It's a tiny, tiny number, a small fraction of the eligible population has actually gone forward with it. I wonder if you think that's because there is just such an enormous trust gap here. And if that's the case, if parents are saying, look, this doesn't make sense to us, we're reading people like Dr. McCary, we're watching people like Dr. Sapphire and many other people saying, actually, this data doesn't support what the government is saying. I don't want to put this stuff into my kid's body, inject stuff into him or her needlessly. I'm not going to go there. That might be maybe a heartening thing on some level, but it's also quite disturbing to me because we need our public health community to have credibility, to be trustworthy, and for people to actually listen to them when that's needed. And I feel like they have just spent the last couple of years actively undermining their own credibility over and over again to the point that people aren't listening to them now where maybe it's the right thing not to listen to them. 
But if the time comes where their expertise and authority might be really crucial again, it might be gone. And I'm not sure that's a healthy thing. We basically have lawlessness and chaos in public health. There's no authority. It's like a failed state like Libya. No one believes anything coming out of the CDC. People there told us in our reporting that they were embarrassed to say publicly that they work at the CDC. They used to be proud. 3% of kids under five have been vaccinated, despite the CDC pushing it hard for nearly a month now. Now, there, and remember, of the 3% who got vaccinated under five years of age, some of them got vaccinated because they're forced to, because they have to go to summer camp, or you know, New York is talking about mandating it. So it's not like the CDC and the public are on different pages. They're on different planets. There's a complete disconnect. And I think what you're saying is exactly correct. Let me ask you about this. Byron York read the piece that you wrote, your essay, and he tweeted the other day, quote, seems like this would be an excellent topic for primetime congressional hearings. Now, he's probably making a reference almost certainly to the January 6th primetime hearings Just completely setting that aside, I don't want to muddy the waters with that. I do think that exactly what you are raising, the allegations from these whistleblowers that they are being muzzled, they can't even dissent from what they believe is bad, wrongheaded public health guidance. The Democrats are not going to call hearings on this. They are sort of invested in this current bureaucracy that's politicized. But if Republicans win back the House, which – The polls suggest that they will. I feel like one of the first things they might want to do when it comes to accountability and transparency would be to hold a hearing on this issue. What do you think about that? Well, I've been in touch with members of Congress. They want to know who these sources are. And I've reached out to several of these sources. By the way, it wasn't a couple. It was dozens of very unhappy, pissed off people and they were at the highest level. These are not, you know, it's not somebody who was working in a broom closet. This was people at the highest level of scientific evaluation. Um, so I think it's important for us to take a look here because we're still making all these problems, still making all these mistakes actively. We're not even getting good data on COVID deaths right now. There's one report that only 10% of COVID deaths were actually from COVID. So we've made a lot of mistakes in in order to rebuild credibility. I think you need to see some humility from our officials. They made so many catastrophic mistakes, ignoring natural immunity, closing schools, boosting young people, mask mandates in schools, and now vaccinating babies with no data. People are hungry for honesty, and that's what it's going to take. It may take all new leadership altogether. What's your reaction to Dr. Fauci's announcement that he plans to retire in the next few years? Well, Dr. Fauci is a highly political individual who happens to have an MD behind his name. I can tell you, when we were doing the reporting for this story, people at the NIH were kind of shocked that he was talking about COVID, that they had said, what does he know about COVID? And uh, then they found out he was basically functioning as a public health advisor. And he said they, they were saying to themselves, how is Dr. Fauci acting as a public health advisor? Uh, he has a rheumatology training officially as in fellowship training as a rheumatologist, not infectious diseases. The media granted him the title, the nation's top infectious diseases doctor. And his job is to give out grants to researchers. And basically that's been weaponized. If you look at the Brett Bear coverage of the Wuhan lab leak, 
So people were shocked. And so I think he realizes that his, you know, he has served now a term longer than President Mugabe of Zimbabwe, the African president who would never leave. And I would argue he's done far more damage. So we need right now to get fresh leadership. And I think he's smart enough to realize that he's not welcome in the next administration. Dr. McCary, we're in the middle of a pretty significant COVID case surge around the country. We're probably underestimating the number of cases because of lack of reporting, people testing at home, that kind of thing, people not testing at all. But that's the bad news, sort of. The good news is it seems like hospitalizations for COVID have not spiked in a dangerous way, that most hospitalizations being attributed to COVID are the vast majority of them just incidental positive tests when people are showing up at the hospital for something else. That's good news as well, it would seem. Far fewer ICU admissions, maybe you know a lot less severity in this round, which is all encouraging. And yet you're seeing some places talking about re-imposition of mask mandates in Los Angeles County, in San Diego. They're going to bring them back in the schools. And a school official, the president of the school district in San Diego, said if parents don't like it, they can just not send their kids to school and they can go back to virtual learning, which we know is a disaster. In some ways, it kind of feels like we are refusing collectively, at least in certain parts of the country, refusing to learn any lessons and to really look at or internalize any data. And we keep coming back to the same cycle, like stuck in this rut of the same failed so-called solutions over and over again, no matter what the actual science says. Just your reaction to the hospitalizations number that I mentioned, and then some of these places that are talking about more mandates, including in schools. Well, the hospitalization numbers being wrong, we have no compass right now. We're using inflated numbers, and it's kind of by design, if you think about it. Look at the quote from Debbie Burks in April of 2020. She said, we are counting deaths with COVID as deaths, deaths for COVID. That came out recently again. And, and so that is a huge problem when we set up policy, because right now we've got this code yellow, orange, red, zones, and it's being manipulated because it's not based on good data. And people in the CDC know that. They know they're smart people. But there's almost this sense that we need to keep everybody in emergency mode. There are forever maskers. We're seeing them in parts of the Northeast and in San Diego. You know, Boston schools never removed their mask mandate for kids it's K crazy. through 12 at any point. And look at San Francisco public schools. They just put out a report. 47% of eighth graders are not ready for high school. So um, I think we got to come to grips with the real data. We, unlike last year, now have tons of great studies on the schools that were masking and not masking. And guess what? Zero difference in transmission. The masks did not reduce transmission. Just like there's revisionist history people in political science, there's revisionist scientists. And right now, they are the establishment um, people uh, t- telling toddlers to wear masks. Dr. Marty McCary, our guest, Fox News contributor, surgeon and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins. His book is The Price We Pay, and I do recommend that you check out his piece on Substack at Common Sense. I wrote about it at townhall.com on the tip sheet. Very important, and I think, I suspect, if and when the Republicans win back the House, there will be some hearings on this, and there should be. Dr. McCary, as always, thank you. Great to be with you, Guy. Thanks.
It is the Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour. It will resume after this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. That ball is hammered to left center field. Goodbye. Two-run shot. Tie game. Right up to where he used to sit as a kid coming to games here at Dodger Stadium. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. It was the Major League Baseball All-Star Game last night in Los Angeles. Dodger Stadium. Giancarlo Stanton there with a Stantonian blast. 457 feet. Just a bomb to left center to tie the game, as you heard in the fourth inning. The American League tacked on one more run and beat the National League 3-2. to two. I think that's nine straight All-Star Game wins for the American League which is just clearly the superior league and has been for a while. I'm sorry. I'm nothing against the National League or fans of the National League. It just is what it is. So Stanton, a member of my Yankees, was the All-Star Game MVP because of that home run, the first Yankee to win that accolade since Mariano Rivera nearly a decade ago. And I will admit, as a baseball fan, I've never really loved the All-Star Game. I would watch, I hated it, when was that? Years ago in Milwaukee, where the game ended in a tie. It's ridiculous, and I guess they came up with a new rule that if the game were tied after some number of innings, 10 or 11 innings, something like that, they would go to a mini home run derby to decide the winner, really. Kind of like the baseball equivalent of a hockey shootout. It did not come to pass last night, obviously, the 3-2 win for the AL, but I just don't really watch the All-Star game that much. I'll tune in a little bit here or there. Last year, definitely not. You recall that I was going out of my way not to watch one second of All-Star coverage because of what Major League Baseball did to Atlanta, did to Georgia, for completely baseless political reasons. That is still one of the more embarrassing episodes of caving to the woke mob that I've seen from an American organization or corporation in a long time, and the commissioner should still be embarrassed of himself, especially since the affront to democracy that he was supposedly protesting was a lie, as evidenced by record voter turnout, not suppression, in this year's primary elections after that law was put into place. In any case, this year was Los Angeles. I wasn't, like, trying not to watch. I just didn't really have that much interest. I'm excited for the All-Star break to be over and to see if the Yankees can come close to maintaining their insane 1998-esque clip in the second half of the season. And maybe if I'm lucky, I'll get to the Bronx a few more times before October. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. You're listening to the Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show. It's a special extended home stretch on this Wednesday on the Guy Benson Show. Glad you're here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free each and every day on demand. And we have to talk about last night. And before we do, let me just say this. For those of you who might be growing weary of Backstreet Boys talk because it has come up multiple times based on the connection that we've made here at the show and the concert that I went to and meeting Brian backstage and his lovely wife, Leanne, and then getting Christine tickets for her birthday. She was at the show last night. We will not be talking about the Backstreet Boys on this show, I believe, for a very long time. 
Now, we might, underscore might, be getting Brian on the show at some point. Maybe when they're promoting their Christmas album, which would be a while from now. I know Christine would start promoting it next month if it were up to her. That's when she puts up her Christmas decorations. She does her pumpkin spice in July, Christmas decorations in August, I believe. So we'll just put a moratorium on Backstreet Boys talk here at the show until and unless we get him a few months down the line. But we have to talk about them one more time because Christine, on her birthday, her 41st yesterday, brought not her husband, who she didn't invite at all, but her best friend from childhood to go to the concert at the PNC Performing Arts Center in New Jersey. And the Backstreet Boys just happened to be in her home state on her birthday. So it was meant to be. And as we mentioned, the Luttrells, Brian and Leanne, and their friend and colleague, Bobby, who's a listener to the show, who promotes this concert tour, they all combined and, at my request, were able to pull some strings and get Christine two tickets for the show last night. She was extremely excited. She was a little bit nervous. When I checked in with her after the show yesterday, she was still trying to figure out what to wear. And then I dropped a bomb on Cookie. She did not know this was coming. I was actually debating not telling her anything and letting one more little detail, maybe not so little, be a surprise. But then I was sitting there thinking about it. What could go wrong? And I realized several things could go wrong if I didn't perhaps help her in the right direction and give some useful guidance. So I decided just a few hours before she was leaving for this concert to inform her that, in fact, not only had the Luttrells arranged two good tickets to the show, but, yes, also backstage passes after the show, which I was not sure was going to be the case until about two days prior. And I knew that she was going to melt down. So I didn't want to tell her too soon because then she might not be able to, like, function in her life or at her job. So I waited until after the show and made the decision to spoil the surprise just a little bit. And first of all, Christine, when I told you backstage passes, would you like to share with the audience how you reacted? I'm surprised Dan wasn't recording. I'm surprised you didn't give him a heads up and just record because. Oh, we probably should have. We should have arranged that. You screamed. (laughs) You screamed very loudly. It sounded like you were maybe going to cry at one point. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I just got very, very overwhelmed. And then I I didn't know what to do. I really did it. And then I had to call my best friend, and then she started screaming. I mean, it was it was just a scream fest of two 40-year-old women. How many times did you change your outfit before you finally settled on one? You know what? The problem was, in New Jersey, we were going through, like, a massive, massive heat wave. That's so basically it was everywhere. Very, yeah, that's true. But it was very hard to be stylish because you just needed to be cool. And honestly, I wore like a little summer dress and it was so hot last night. I believe they stopped the concert twice, maybe three times because people passed out. They were really, really good about that. They stopped in the middle of singing and Nick was like, whoa, 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 drop it. Like, everybody just stop right now. There is someone that needs help immediately. And he was, like, getting really upset. He's like, someone, go help them right now. 
And then I think a little while later, they had to stop again because it was just so hot. Now, I just have to ask you, and this could be a medical privacy issue. Was it you who passed out all three times or are these different people? I did not pass out. I, I was hydrating with water, believe it or not, water mm. uh, the entire time. And let me just tell you, very expensive even to buy a can of water there. Like six bucks. Yeah, I mean, that's how a lot of the money is made at these things and these venues. There's inflation, too. You might have heard about that. We talk about it, you know, every so often here oh. on the show. Now, the reason, oh. Christine, that I decided to tell you this in advance and not let it be a surprise when you showed up was, number one, I was I was legitimately concerned <laughs> that you would have too much to drink during the concert and then would go backstage and would perhaps – you could be say a little sloppy, so a little <laughs> sloppy, you know, maybe stumble around a little bit. God forbid, uh, refund, shall we say, on one of the Backstreet Boys. We just couldn't oh have Oh, my God. So, so I wanted to make sure that you were at least like somewhat about your wits for the backstage portion of the evening, which was very elite. Very few people could go back there. It's not something that you could sign up for. You had to be invited. Same deal that we had down in Raleigh, though it sounded like your crowd was a little bit bigger than ours backstage afterwards. That was thing number one. The other factor was I remember when I picked up my tickets, the two tickets from Will Call, they had wristbands in there. I knew what the wristbands meant because I had been briefed by our listener, Bobby, who's doing promotions, like this is what the tickets are. The wristbands are for backstage. You ask security where to go after the show. So I knew every step of the way what everything meant and how to use it. It occurred to me that without that same type of guidance, you might have just assumed that the wristbands were for getting into your section of tickets and you would never even know what they meant and that you would have access to go backstage. I don't know if anyone explained that to you when you picked up the tickets, and I just didn't want to run the risk of coming on the air here today and asking you how was it and then asking you how was backstage, and you're like, what are you talking about? And then you would end up disappointed realizing that you had the passes unbeknownst to you and your friend, which would have sort of put a damper on the whole thing. So would you have figured that out eventually based on the information that they gave you, or was that important for me to have shared with you explicitly beforehand? I would have no clue because I never got a wristband. Oh. So what happened was when I went to the will call, which was super easy, it was it was on the later side, so I don't think we probably got there until about eight o'clock. The boys didn't go on until about eight forty, so and I was gonna go early because I knew Brian Latrell's son was an opening act, but not for this concert. So um, we got to the parking lot, which was super easy because my husband got his VIP parking. We walked right up to Will Call, and they just gave us the two tickets, and there was like two stickers that said Backstreet Boys, and in marker, it said BL and the date. So I'm like, BL is Brian Luttrell, the date's here, and they didn't say a word to me of what this was. So I had a feeling, because you told me, and I was super bummed, because we didn't go until after to that spot, and it looks like we could have been there from, like, 6 o'clock on, I think. We could have went before hung out there. They had plenty of food and drinks and stuff, sat at our seats, and then went back. Um, but we didn't know because nobody said a word to us. And when I did go up to a security guard, he had no clue what this piece of uh, the sticker was. 
So I'm but you, so glad you told me. Okay, or else you wouldn't have known at all. So I, I am now feeling extra confident that I made the right decision oh. in sort of springing the surprise a little bit early or else the surprise would have never materialized for you because you wouldn't have known. Okay, that is good. I'm glad to hear it. So just briefly tell us how was the concert? It looked like your tickets were pretty great in terms of the seats. Oh, that was the best part because, you know, these outdoor theaters like arenas they have you know the grass section and it's all open and then you just go into the seats and usually you know my girlfriends and I we always sat you know on the grass and with like lawn seats so it was so cool because we started up at the top I didn't know really where we were going and anytime we got to somebody to ask where we go they just kept going oh no you got to go farther down way down way down we would get to the next section oh no 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 you got to keep going oh no no you got to keep going and then we were basically in one of the first sections besides the standing part and the seats were amazing like the lights went on the music started and I just like my friend and I just went back to being 20 years old I legit screamed on the top of my lungs scared the guy in front of me (laughs) when they finally made their appearance you know after they had the video I like got so overwhelmed (laughs) so you were just shrieking for two and a half hours yeah the guy in front of me kept looking behind me too like okay Stop with the shrieking when you're singing. You got to calm down. <laughs> but you weren't the only one. Like that was sort of a commonplace no. thing. Oh, it was like, and I was surprised. Like there were a lot of girls younger than me. Um, but it is very funny to see a bunch of women my age just, you know, bopping around, wearing these Backstreet Boys T-shirts. Like we legit thought we were back in our late teens. No, no, just like reliving the glory days for sure. There were a lot of women, as I said, in their 40s and maybe Mm -hmm. early 50s. And then there were actually a lot of women in their 20s and then like some men, not that many, at least when we went to the show down in North Carolina. Were you satisfied with the performance? Were you happy with the set list? Were you able to sing along most of the time? I would say out of the 28 songs, I probably knew 25. Um, So, yeah, I was Super happy with the set list. They were they played a couple that because I had been monitoring their set list around the country. <laughs> There's a website you can go to to see like mm-hmm. what the set. So I've been monitoring it, and there was a couple songs on the Millennium album that they weren't playing, and they played it last night, which is so crazy to me. Um, they mixed it up a lot last night, where I thought the you know encore would be it was totally different. So it was such a good show. They are still. So amazing, the energy on them all, and they just they put on a good show. I loved. I'm sure you remember. I loved how each of the boys came out separately and like got to talk to the audience and sang a little bit on their own. It was super cool. The boys, as she refers to them, <laughs> and then you met what four out of five of the boys backstage, and you sent me and you posted on your Twitter at Cookies Jar 1988 a little compilation of those photographs with 80% of the band. Ironically, Brian, who got you the tickets through his wife and their friend, he couldn't make it backstage. He's your favorite, the only one you didn't meet. Hopefully you'll get to meet him if and when he comes in and does our show. But you met all the other ones. And I only met Brian and what was the guy's name? Howie, I think. I met Howie briefly. The other three that you met, including Nick Carter, we did not see down in North Carolina. And Nick Carter is probably like the most famous of those five. Were you able to easily get photos or did you have to be a little bit of a kind of pushy um, producer cookie? 
I mean, I had to be pushy cookie, but it didn't bother me at all. Um, when we got <laughs> backstage, you know, to the area, it was, like, super cool. It was, like, so, like, behind the scenes. We got to see where the tour buses, you know, the buses were and everything. And yep. it was really cool to watch the whole crew put, you know, back on the tractor trailers all this equipment just so they can all do it again. It was it was fascinating, but we're waiting there just not too long. And then Howie walked out, who was super nice. I would say the friendliest, talking to everybody. Really, we had conversations with him because his wife is from Jersey. So, and then Nick walked out, and I think, like, my friend and I almost fainted. Like, we did not expect him to walk out. And we just, like, <laughs> bum-rushed him. Like, bum-rushed him. I think he was taken aback by us. It was a little scary. <laughs> He's like, security. I thought we had security for this. And then we, and remember, I hadn't drank at all. So, like, I looked at my friend. I'm like, we got to keep asking. She's like, I'm nervous. I'm like, just give me, like, a little bit of wine. I'll get some liquid courage. So I had, like, a half a half a glass of wine. And then I just bopped over to everybody and got my pictures. And we're sitting there waiting and waiting. And I'm like, I finally go up to one of the security guards. I'm like, do you know where Brian is? And um, they're like, oh, he came out for maybe two minutes around, like, 6 o'clock tonight. And, like, he's not here. And I was like, uh, oh, my gosh. Like, the well, one. <laughs> the one you were there for and the one who was so generous to get you there, you didn't see. But that might change in the future. But you saw the rest of them. Howie, now I know this stuff, having seen them and, like, wikipedia them and everything. Howie, AJ, Kevin, and Nick. It's an extended home stretch under extenuating circumstances. I do have one more big curiosity. We'll tackle that with Christine after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch part two today. And one last question, Cookie. On the scale, on the spectrum of birthdays all time, where does this one land? Best birthday ever. I mean, there's just no question. Best birthday ever. And I'm talking about on my sweet 16, I was in Europe. But don't forget, I got mugged in Europe. Yeah. So Mugged um, by a mime. By a mime. I don't know why you like to say it, like, allegedly. It happened to me, and it can happen to no, you. No, I, I, no, I don't think it's allegedly. I think it's real, and I think it's kind of hilarious. Really? Was it on your Being birthday? Mugged- was, he like, was he, like, miming, blowing out birthday candles, and then, boom, he robs you? <laughs> well, I went to Europe for my Sweet 16. My parents had said trip. They always gave me the option trip. Or a party, and I always picked a trip. So, like, yeah, I don't know if it was exactly my birthday, but, yeah, I got right. mugged. And oh, I think you made the everybody. right choice back then, although, obviously, uh, the unfortunate little crime incident happened. But you're saying yesterday, last night, the concert was your best birthday ever. I'm sorry, Bobby, if you're listening. But, yes, I mean, wow. who meets the Backstreet Sorry, I'm getting too excited again. Who meets the Backstreet Boys on their birthday? Well, y- you do. You do. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Guy Benson. Well, because, like, it's you made my that pleasure. Happen. I give you a lot of nonsense and sort of a hard time on the show. It's always tongue in cheek. Uh, but we so appreciate you here. And if I was going to somehow be able to pull a string and get you into that concert on your birthday, I was going to do it. And just thanks to the Latrells and to Bobby for making that happen. And I'm so glad that you had a great time and that your friend had a great time and you met almost all of them. And there's one more you've got to meet. And hopefully that will happen here in our studio on The Guy Benson Show. By the way, I have to ask, Dan and Wyatt, having listened to all of this, seemingly endless segments about the Backstreet Boys here on this program that you both work on, 
Is there any FOMO on your part, Dan? Would you go see the Backstreet Boys, or are you sort of over this? No, I totally would go see them. I did see them when I was young because I have an older sister, and she was obsessed. And I went, and I, you know, it was impressive how they perform and how they sing, you know. So I would go for the nostalgia purposes of it, and uh, I think I'd have a good time. And it's a spectacle. It is quite a performance that they put on, whether you love them or not. And Wyatt, this was your home state as well, New Jersey. Did you have any thought about going home, maybe surprising producer Christine for her birthday as one of her many best friends? Honestly, the only way you can get me to go to a concert like that would be if I went with Christine. So, yeah, I mean, I would have considered it if I was there. Hang on. So what you're saying is if I offered you two tickets to the Backstreet Boys and the second ticket was not for Christine, you would pass. But as long as you were with Christine, you would go? 100%. Wow. Christine, can you believe that? Is that real? I don't know. I'm sort of suspicious. I'm skeptical. I I, (laughs) I am too. I don't know if I believe it. Why, why? This just puts the icing on the birthday cake for producer Christine for Cookie. I mean, it's just like it was such a special day yesterday. And now Wyatt with that lovely, somewhat dubious tribute. It's just it came out of nowhere. I'm in shock. I'll have to process now that the show's over because we're out of time. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. We will talk to you then. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.